Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful who have gathered here out of love for you, and may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, here we are, once again, the first Sunday of Lent, that 40-day period that leads us to the celebration of the resurrection. So the, the religious, the people who have dedicated their lives to living in community in the order of St. Benedict, the people we call Benedictines have a saying. And I think it's so appropriate for us how right here as we begin the season of Lent, the saying is, always we begin again. Now, that's good news for those of us who decided we were going to do something special for Lent or set aside something for Lent or, well, maybe New Year's resolutions, that always we begin again. And so we begin again today. And um, our sermon series for this season is called Honest to God. And I think it's so appropriate that we are uh, making this journey in the Psalms. The, a lot of people will say that the, the whole Bible is God's word to us, but for the Psalms, which are our words to God, our songs to God. And, and if you know anything about the Psalms, you know that the psalmist is absolutely, utterly honest, including shaking their fist at God when things are not going right, calling God out. Um, they're, you know, but also praising with whole soul who God is, right? And so this is just such a good uh, sermon series, I think, for us to engage with these psalms. The psalm we just heard that Nan read, um, it's the first in the whole book, the very first psalm, in what um, churchy folks, all of us church geeks, call the Psalter. That means the whole of the psalms, okay? And um, it's the first. And so I, as I read that this week and pondered it, I thought, well, of all the psalms, this one? This one to start? What, 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 what? I mean, you know, why not, uh, you know, be still and know that I am God? Why not? I am, you know, there's all these psalms, and, and we get this one. We get this one that, that begins with, happy are those who do not, do not follow the advice of the wicked. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> well, uh, I happen to know um, Professor J. Clinton McCann, Jr. He is a professor at Eden Theological Seminary, and for the 12 years that I served on the Eden Theological Seminary board, we got to know a lot of the professors, and we got to know about their work. And his work has been in the Psalms. And so 
I was reading some of what he has written about this psalm. And so some of what I'm going to talk to you about today is really trying to let, the, let our eyes be opened with this text. And, and some of it comes from um, Dr. McCann, who I have such great respect for. He's done a whole book on the Psalms. So, as it turns out, happiness is a central topic of the Psalms. Now, we don't tend to think about that because there's so many psalms and there's so many emotions and so many things going on, but happiness shows up no less than 20 times in the psalm. So it's clearly a perpetual human issue, isn't it? I mean, you want to be happy, I want to be happy, all God's children want to be happy. But it's also important to note that it is the very first word of the Psalter. McCann suggests that it is not too much of an exaggeration to say that the whole book of Psalms is a commentary on that single word. Now, I have never heard that before, and I have never thought about that before. Some 2,500 years or so, ago was the origin of this text. And we're still thinking about happiness today. You know, we're thinking about so much, y'all probably know this, that there's now an academic discipline on happiness. I'm not kidding you, there are academic studies there's now a Journal of Happiness Studies, an interdisciplinary forum on subjective well-being. <laughs> and happiness scholars are interested in what people think about a lot of things like income, relationships, health, career. You know, what do you think about in terms of being happy? All that stuff and more. But McCann points out that while this approach is interesting, it is fundamentally different from the psalmist approach to happiness. We want to think about us, but the psalmist thinks about God. It's not about us as much as it is about God. So happiness is not primarily about what we human beings feel or want or want to do, but it's about doing what God would want. That's the whole key, right? That's what this psalm is saying to us. So the beginning of Psalm 1, the first couple of verses uh, talk about the law. Uh, the, the Hebrew word there is Torah, which has been significantly interpreted as the law, well, for as long as I can remember, I mean, that's always the way it was introduced to me, even before I went to seminary, that the Torah was the law. But, you know, that is a very limiting understanding, especially in English, right? And especially for contemporary Americans. It, it, it is misleading in that when we think about law, we think about a legalistic 
understanding that there are rules, right? But McCann points out that the really better interpretation of that word Torah is teaching or instruction. Now, does that change how you think about what the psalmist is saying to us there? It does for me. So the Torah doesn't mean law as much as it means instruction. So Psalm 1 is not about the idea of happiness being reduced to a mechanical, legalistic following of a set of rules for which you are rewarded. That's not what it's about. Instead, happiness is a dynamic process that involves and requires, okay, get ready for this, constant meditation, as the psalmist says, day and night upon God's will in order to be able to discern what God would have us do and be in every situation. To think on God, to dwell on what God would will for us and our world. In short, Jesus would later summarize the Torah in that we are to think of what it means in all times and all places for Jesus to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself is the summary of all the teaching, all the instruction. This is what Jesus offers to us. Now consider the translation of prosper. I think we all want to prosper, right? I mean, that sounds good to me. I'm not in that group with the evil ones. I bet you don't think you are either. No, instead, we want to be with the ones that prosper. And we can't help as contemporary Americans to think that prosper means money. Prosper means material wealth. Okay, we need to let go of that. A better translation is thrives. To thrive. If there is a reward involved for dwelling in the will of God day and night, it is derived from a connection with God. And that allows us to bear fruit, to be like the tree at the stream side. And, more importantly, you know those wicked ones? You know who they are, right? The wicked ones? Well, instead of thinking that God is punishing them, how about let's understand that they have made a choice. There are two ways of being in the world, and they've made a choice to separate themselves from God. And... Notice that the scripture says the wicked do not stand up for justice. They're unlike the righteous. They do not attend to God's instruction. That, that they're not wicked because God made them so or wants to punish them. They're, they're wicked because they've turned and looked away from God. They've done away with justice. They've done away with righteousness. 
being in right relationship with God. They choose not to be there. Now, to be sure, you may think that this is God's punishment, but that is not what the psalm says. Psalm 1 invites our choice. These are contrasting ways of being in the world. So, the first word of the psalm is happy. The last word of the psalm is perish. We get to choose a way. God's way that promises life or a way that promises death. Now, you might be thinking, I get that. I really get that. I know that I get a choice here, and I've been making a choice for this good stuff, for being just, for being righteous. I've been making that way. But really, how do I do that? I mean, I think most of us want to be good, but how do we do that and do it effectively? How do we do it day after day, moment by moment, breath by breath? Well, there are two ways that we can do that, and it's in the psalm. It's about justice, and it's about righteousness. If we hang on to those two words, we will discover that there's, there is a teaching that reigns above all of others, and it's called the law of love. The promise of Psalm 1, which is reinforced by Jesus and Paul, is that God-directed and neighbor-oriented ways of being in the world are the most rewarding. They produce more happiness than anything else, now, the best example we have of that is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, right? So it turns out that uh, we could make this about Jesus' personal temptations, that he was temptation, tempted because he was hungry, he was tempted because he uh, could have had power over everything, uh, he was tempted in order to be safe, but it's really bigger than that because um, he was living as a person in an occupied country. Um, Caesar was the king and savior, by the way. The occupying nation of Rome provided the food for people. Caesar was at the center of it as the king and savior. And the, and the king provided safety, right? It was called the Pax Romana. So Jesus isn't just dealing with his own personal temptations. He's dealing with something much greater than that. He's dealing with something much bigger. And so Jesus has a whole big choice to make here. It's not just about him. It's about the world. It's about the future. It's about all people. And so we get in him an example of someone who, instead of saying, I'm going to make sure you have bread, to I'm going to break bread with you. 
I'm going to make sure you're safe by being with you. And I'm going to be a king who doesn't sit on a throne, but sits at a table, right? This is the example we get that is so, so, so powerful. So the truth is today, you and I live in a world where the whole world wants to make things either or. Right or wrong, good or bad, up or down, left or right. And you know, there's a time and a place for that. There are times when we have to make that kind of either-or choice. But there's also times when we have to broaden our understanding. There's something in between all of that. For example, if you listened to President Biden at his second um, State of the Union speech, he got bipartisan approval by saying that the answer is not to defund the police, it's to fund the police. But I think that's a, that's a false answer because it's and both. Yes, we need to fund the police because they provide uh, safety for most people, and I'm very clear about that. Other people, not so much. And some are very, very good, and others not so much. But it's both. It takes both police and people working in social services and in education, because scholars know that the thing that creates violence in our world is for people to be hungry and uneducated and not safe. So here we go. that's one of those cases where, and, and Richard Gore talks about this all the time, don't make it about human and spiritual. It's all together. Richard Gore says all the time, don't make it about the binaries, make it about it, there's a lot more going on there. There are times when we need to look at the choices carefully. You know, okay, so I'm going to tell you what you already know. So Putin is trying to win the day by power and control. And for what purpose? We, we don't really know, right? And wouldn't it be better to work with Ukraine, to build relationships, to work together, to provide for the needs of both countries, and the EU, and the United States, and Australia, and everywhere else in the world? I mean, I watched the information of people fleeing Ukraine into Poland. And a little girl got off the train, and there was an old man, and he gave her a high five. And then a whole group of people let a little six-year-old have a happy birthday. Isn't that, isn't that where we need to be? That there are two ways of being in the world, a way of using power and control, or a way of welcoming and loving, a way of sitting in a powerful place, or a way of inviting people to our table. Isn't that how we want to be in the world? Isn't that what justice and righteousness mean? 
The psalmist asks us to consider the best way of being in the world that makes for happiness. And our choices are likely not between either or, between, but between better and best. Father Richard War says this to us. The true self, the honest-to-God self, is the divine indwelling, the Holy Spirit within you, which, by the way, is a combination of humanity and divinity. Great article. Nan shared it with me. I had seen it, but I hadn't read it yet. The Meaning of Lent for This Unchurched Christian by Margaret Renkel. I just have to read a part of it to you, so it's so good. In the old days, my Lenten resolution almost always meant giving up something whose absence I would feel acutely. Coffee, perhaps, or cussing. <laughs> In that way, I would be reminded again and again of what this season is for. But, we haven't, but haven't we all had enough sacrifice for the last couple of years? Every day I grieve two beloved family members lost during the pandemic. Every day I bear the grief of a burning world, and I don't need to give up cussing Putin, either. <laughs> During their mid-year, midlife years of creeping weight gain, my mother and father would announce that they were losing 10 pounds for Lent, a goal I always found hilarious. I'm no theologian, but I feel sure that Jesus did not spend 40 days and 40 nights in the desert so he could fit into his old jeans. <laughs> it's not that I disapprove of the secular expressions of the Lenten observation that have sprung up during this century of steeply declining church membership. If somebody wants to lose 10 pounds or jumpstart their, their new novel or give veganism a try, I say more power to them. And God knows I'm in for a social media fast. Life is hard for all living things. To make it harder, knowingly and willingly, for even a contained period of time is a uniquely human exercise. We want to be better than we are. We want living to mean more than surviving. There is something truly beautiful about that impulse, whatever form it takes. So perhaps for you and me this Lent, where we always begin again, it's not about false fasting or even about songs of praise or affirmations of deep trust, but simply lifting our souls to God. The important thing is to do it and to join with the ancient psalmist who said, here's my soul, Lord. In whatever shape it's in, I lift it to you. May that be the first choice of our Lenten journey. And may God grant us the courage to live it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.